Loving Father, we turn our time this morning over to you once again, and we know that we are utterly dependent upon you. We're dependent upon your Spirit to show us the things that we need to glean from this important passage. It's uh, an area of controversy in the body of Christ uh, in, in terms of trying to sort out exactly how the things Paul is, is talking about here impact our behaviors today toward each other in, in the body. And so we look to you, Lord, to clarify that for us. We look to your Spirit to drive home the power of these exhortations from your Word and to change us. Lord, we pray that our body would be changed, that we as individuals would be changed in our actions toward one another, that we would give love preeminence in all things. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to start with a question again. How many of the freedoms that you enjoy as an American come without any limitations? If you have a driver's license issued to you by any of the states in the union, you can get in your car anytime you want to, day or night, and you can drive as far as you want to within the contiguous United States, and you can do so without having to worry about asking for anybody's permission. Now, in the history of men and nations, that's actually a pretty impressive freedom. But is it an absolute freedom? Is it a freedom without limits? Of course it isn't. That freedom ends where the well-being of every other person on the road begins. If you're one of those who likes to drive 70 in a 45-mile-an-hour zone, or if you like to race on public streets, or if you like to get intoxicated before you drive, or even if your car presents a danger to others because it's missing certain important lights, then you're, at some point, you're likely to experience the limitation of your freedoms when that, that flashing light comes on behind you. Now, does that mean that your freedom to drive where you want, when you want, isn't a real freedom? No. It's very real. But it just means that it's a freedom you get to enjoy within certain reasonable limitations. In today's passage, Paul tells us that we have very real freedom in Christ to enjoy all manner of things that God has given to us. And he declares with great personal conviction that some of the very things that certain Christians consider taboo are actually perfectly fine in the eyes of God for us to enjoy. But as soon as he declares that, he immediately and forcefully qualifies that declaration of liberty by telling us about a far greater principle of life that determines how and when we must limit our exercise of such freedoms. All right. You're welcome to plug away at it, but don't worry about it. Now, I'm going to... I can't show it to you, but I'll talk you through kind of where we're going this morning. Within this passage, there's first a central exhortation provided to us in chapter 14, verse 13. And by the way, John, make sure you got the right input on that projector. I don't think that would have changed. But uh, The central exhortation, don't put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way, verse 13. And then after presenting the exhortation, Paul gives us two bases for that exhortation. First, what I call a moral basis, the moral basis, and that moral basis is that love trumps knowledge and love trumps liberty. Then he gives us the theological basis for the exhortation, and that theological basis has to do with how the kingdom of God actually works. And then finally, in verses 19 to 23, Paul gives us the assignment very clearly stated so that there's no question about what he's commanding of us. And the first thing 
uh, is the central exhortation in verse 13. And that exhortation is, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, the Greek word at the very beginning of that verse means no longer. And the idea here is, no longer, therefore, are we to judge one another. Now, Paul is saying, stop judging one another the way you have been. He's not addressing a problem that might occur. He's addressing a problem that was occurring in the Roman church at the time that he was writing this. And it was a problem that was broad enough in its occurrence to warrant this exhortation to the entire church. It was a real problem then, and it's a real problem now. The word determine in verse 13, determine this, is the same, it's from the exact same Greek word as the word judge that occurs just before this in the same passage, in the same verse. He says, therefore, let us not go on judging one another, but instead let us judge this. And that's called a word play. Paul does that a lot. The Bible does that a lot. And it's supposed to get our attention. Paul already talked about judging in the passage just before this. In verse 4, he said, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord will make him stand. And then he ended this the passage just before this in verse 12 by saying, uh, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. We don't answer to each other in the judgment. We answer to God. And so judging one another is of no real consequence. I believe what Paul is saying with this wordplay is that you are very adept at passing judgment on your fellow slaves, something which you have neither the holiness nor the authority to do. And now in verse 13 he's saying, If you want to apply your amazing skills at passing judgment, I have just the thing for you. Judge yourself to be wrong when you put a stumbling block in your brother's way. And determine never, never to do it again. These are forceful words and we need to take them as forceful words. If we read this passage and it has no impact on our thinking or on the way we deal with one another... That's the moral equivalent to driving 70 in a school zone when children are crossing the street. People for whom Christ died are going to get hurt. I've said this before. One of the most pervasive themes that shows up in the exhortations in both Testaments is that if you're looking for someone to change for the better, first look at yourself And then look to the one who alone is able to change you. Don't look at your brother. If you're prone to finding fault, make sure you're addressing the fault in yourself first. This was a huge theme for Jesus. He said to the Pharisees, you're worried about that speck in your brother's eye and you haven't noticed the log in yours. This principle is dirt simple, but it's amazingly elusive to us because of the habit of self-exalting and self-serving sin against which all of us struggle. And because it's elusive to us, Paul says forcefully, stop in your tracks and look at this. He says, stop doing what you have been doing. All right. If it's so critical that we avoid putting a stumbling block or an obstacle in a brother's way, then it's certainly important for us to understand what Paul means when he refers to an obstacle or a stumbling block. We need to know what that means. Fortunately, Paul gives us some specifics to clarify that for us. In Romans 14, verse 2, the previous passage, he said, One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So we know he's, one example is that he's talking about food that we eat. In verse 5 of Romans 14, he said, One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. So 
Another example is that some men observe days as special and others don't. He goes on in the passage. He talks again about food in verse 15. He talks about eating and drinking in verse 16. And then in verse 21, he he goes from specific examples to a very general statement that we need to we need to notice. He says it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. All right, so the obstacle or stumbling block that he's talking about can have to do with what Christians eat, with what they drink, with what special days they observe, but it has to do with a lot more than that. It can be anything that you do that takes advantage of your freedom in Christ, your real freedom in Christ, that causes your brother to stumble. If we limit the principle here to any time-bound or culture-bound behavior, we're going to miss the relevance of the passage to us, and that would be a very bad mistake. Now, I gave you a list last week of several behaviors that I have personally observed that have become points of friction and division among Christians. Not all in this body, but some some in this body. That list was imperfect, and it was very definitely a partial list. Your own list should include anything that you choose to do to take advantage of your real freedom in Christ that causes your brother to stumble. And I'll explain that stumbling part a little further in a moment. But I want to make another very important point here. Those of us who bristle the most against any semblance of legalism need to pay close attention to the fact that this passage is not about responding to legalists. It's not about responding to those who are seeking to impose their restrictive version of Christianity on you and on other believers. Colossians 2 addresses that problem head on. We looked at it a little bit last week. And in Colossians 2, Paul provides an answer to that problem. Others trying to impose their restrictive version of Christianity on you. And he says, strict rules about what's okay for you to handle or to taste or to touch. He said, those rules only have the pretense of piety, of godliness. And they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. And he makes it clear that you are not compelled by God to do or not to do those things just to accommodate what some other brother or sister in Christ tells you you should be doing. You have very real liberty before God not to worry about such things. But responding to legalists is not what this passage in Romans 14 is about. It is also not about fixing those believers who are still honestly trying to sort out how the grace of God in Jesus Christ demands that they draw the boundaries on certain behaviors. This passage actually deals with the other side of that issue. See, this passage is not about what your brother or sister is doing. It's about what you're doing. It is about what you who are rightly convinced of your freedoms in Christ need to do to limit those freedoms. It's about the limitation of liberty. And we say, God, how can it be a real freedom if I have to limit it because of some Christian who doesn't even recognize it as a freedom. How how can that be real? And God's answer here and in other passages is that your freedom is is quite real. And it is very good for you to know that spirituality and genuine godliness, as God measures it, does not consist of what you eat or drink or what days you observe or any such external trappings of piety. Your freedom to to not concern yourself with externals is very real. And there are many, many contexts in which you personally and your family get to exercise those freedoms without worrying about what other 
people think. But here's the deal. (laughs) This passage is not about good and bad. It's about good and best. Your freedom in Christ is a good and desirable thing, but it is not the most important thing. There's something far more important for you to know and to act upon than your liberty in Christ to enjoy the things that God has set before you. Before we talk about that far more important priority, I want to cover one more critical base so that we have our terms properly defined. There's a widespread perception among Christians that any behavior that one believer considers inappropriate or offensive fits into the category of a stumbling block, as Paul defines it. That is a misrepresentation of Scripture, and it very quickly turns our real freedom in Christ into a vapor that's completely meaningless. Because there will always be some brother or sister in Christ who draws the lines in a different place than you do. And if it is their intention to enforce those lines upon you, then there's no real freedom in Christ. This is really important. Doing something that sets off your brother's hyperactive judgment buzzer is not equivalent to causing him to stumble. Putting a stumbling block before your brother does not mean annoying him. It does not mean offending him. Here's what it means. It means tempting him to violate his own conscience before God. If he's already firmly resolved about where he draws his own boundaries regarding a given behavior, and he is in no danger of compromising his strong personal convictions on that issue based on whatever you do or don't do, then what you do or don't do is not a stumbling block to him. Does that make sense? This is critically important, and it is so often misrepresented based on these passages. And what we end up with is is the behavior police rampant in our bodies, telling one playing the Holy Spirit for each other is in effect what it's what we're doing. That's not what God intends. How you choose to exercise your freedom in Christ might offend another brother. It might even set off his self-righteous anger toward you. But if your actions don't entice him to compromise his own convictions before God, they don't have anything to do with what Paul is talking about in this passage. In a closely related passage in 1 Corinthians 8, I'd ask you to turn there for a moment. Paul provides a very specific example that makes this point clear. The Corinthian church was, among other things, sorting out how the pagan sacrificial feasts that were a prominent part of the culture of that city were to affect them, how those those feasts affected them as believers in Christ. There was a huge controversy over whether a believer would be defiled if he consumed meat that came from a batch that had been offered up to a pagan god in a sacrificial feast, and then a portion of that meat was sold in the marketplace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. That's what we know. And then he says in verse 7, a couple of verses down, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then he says, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor the better if we do eat it. See, he's talking again about what we know, but then he comes back to what we do. But take care, lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Okay, that's that's the, the issue. In verses 10 through 12, same, same chapter, 1 Corinthians 8, he says this, If someone sees you 
who have knowledge, that is knowledge that there really aren't any false gods, there's just one God. If someone sees you who have that knowledge dining in, in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if it is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And thus, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Those are powerful words. Now, it's critical to note that in both those passages, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is explicitly talking about the impact of our behavior on our fellow believers, not on unbelievers. That doesn't mean our, it's irrelevant how our behavior impacts unbelievers. But this is talking about the church. This is talking about what we do and how it impacts our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the nature of the stumbling block, if you've lost me, if, if I've lost you, excuse me, before now, the nature of the stumbling block in both passages is this. It is creating a temptation to your brother in Christ to do something that he is not convinced God allows him to do. Even though, even though you have clear knowledge from Scripture that the thing in itself would not be sin for him to do. Now that's an interesting and compelling paradox. You know that something is not sin in and of itself. And yet God does not make you accountable to convince your brother that it's not sin. He makes you accountable to be absolutely certain that your choices do not put your brother's conscience in peril before God. I'm going to talk about a couple of fairly specific examples or scenarios. And I'll tell you right up front, it makes me nervous to do so. Because whatever example I give to you, some of you are going to be prone to say, well, I've never run into that one, so this isn't very relevant to me. Don't let my examples allow you to dodge this issue. I could spend the rest of the day trying to paint scenarios that would cover all bases and I would miss far more than I would cover. Each of you must see this important passage as a divine assignment to you personally to spend some time prayerfully considering this principle and sorting out how it applies to you, where you are prone to violate it, because we're all prone to violate it. Every person in this room needs to do that. Now, here are my limited examples. Hopefully they stir up your thinking more than they constrain it. Let's say you have a brother in Christ who's already firmly resolved in his own conscience that drinking any form of an alcoholic beverage at all would be sin for him. And he has already demonstrated good self-control in that area. For you to have a beer in his presence isn't likely to tempt him to go against that strong personal conviction against drinking. But as soon as he sees you grab a beer from the fridge, he tells you in no uncertain terms that he's offended by the fact that you think it's okay to drink beer. I can say with great confidence that that scenario has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about in this passage. That's what he's talking about in Colossians 2. See, that's just plain old legalism on that brother's part. He's simply trying to usurp the role of the Holy Spirit to put a limit on your liberty in Christ regarding a behavior that God has not specifically forbidden in His Word. According to Colossians 2, you have, you have no obligation before God to modify your behavior to accommodate that brother's strong personal convictions. But let's change that scenario up in one very important respect that brings it into line with what Romans 14 is talking about. Let's say you have a brother in Christ who is still genuinely trying to sort out whether it's right in the eyes of God for him to drink. He's seen the destructiveness of alcohol on other families. Perhaps he himself came from a family with an alcoholic father who made his and his, his mother's life and his siblings' lives miserable. And he's over at your house for dinner. And you're aware that he's still kind of unsure whether it's okay to drink or not to drink. He's not trying to tell you what to do but he's not fully resolved about what he should do before God. 
you decide that his wavering on that issue is his problem, not yours, because you are rightly convinced from God's Word that God does not forbid drinking as long as you don't get drunk. You're rightly convinced of that. That's genuine biblical knowledge. Okay? And you believe that if your brother just had a stronger appreciation for grace, he wouldn't still be wrestling with something like that. So you set out to fix him. And in the name of acting on the freedom that all Christians have to enjoy the good things that God has given to us as long as we don't do them to excess, you pour wine for everyone at the table except that brother, and then you pour him a nice glass of water. And now he's the odd man out at your dinner party. And you've created a very real conflict in his heart. He doesn't want to violate his conscience before God, but he also doesn't want to dishonor you as his host. And so he says, go ahead and pour me a glass of wine too. And then he spends the rest of that evening and a long time after that evening struggling with guilt before God because he was not convinced that he should have done that. Paul says when you put your brother in such a situation, what you are doing is evil. It is a sin against that brother, and it is a sin against Christ. Even though the act of drinking wine in and of itself is clearly not sin. You've turned it into an evil act because you have violated love. You have violated love toward your brother. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. In verses 14 and 15, Having stated the, 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 the principle, the exhortation, do not put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way, he gives us the moral basis of that exhortation. And this is an amazing set of statements he makes in verses 14 and 15. It's important to see how he lays the foundation here for the overriding principle of love. Because first what Paul does is he points out what is true, what we know to be true, based on the grace of God and Christ. And then he implicitly acknowledges that there's a liberty that that knowledge gives us. And having told us what's true and what freedom that truth gives us, he then says there's something that requires you to limit the exercise of that freedom. There's a far greater priority. And Romans 14, 14, the thing that he says that we know to be true is, he says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus. Okay, just take those words. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus. Does this sound like something that's pretty well established? Okay. That nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing that you can partake of on the earth that is wrong to do. What he's saying is he's talking about the kind of kinds of categories that he's already addressed, those things that God has not forbidden. And he, God made it very clear when he lowered that blanket in front of Peter that there's no longer any unclean foods. There are not, not clean and unclean days. There are many things, there are many things that God has set before us that we get to partake of that are not differentiated as far as clean or unclean in the eyes of God. Now, there's a slightly different what we know statement in 1 Corinthians 8. He said, therefore, we read this a moment ago, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world. And there's no God but one. Verse 14, the thing we know is that Things are not clean or unclean and of themselves. And so by implication, that gives us a freedom. And that freedom is we do not have to abstain from things that are not actually unclean in the eyes of God. In 1 Corinthians 8, the knowledge that we have produces a liberty. And that liberty is we don't have to abstain from things that are supposedly defiled by gods who don't even exist. But then Paul tells us there's a far greater priority than the freedom that such knowledge gives us. And it's the same priority he already told us 
is the fulfillment of the law of God. In Romans 14, 15, he says, If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. And then he says, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. The wording is very similar in 1 Corinthians 8, 11. For through your knowledge... He who is weak is ruined. And the word, the Greek word for ruin there is the same word Paul used for destroyed in Romans 14, 15. He who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. Both passages say the one for whom Christ died. Now, Paul could have used a little less harsh wording here. He could have said, don't, don't let your freedom to eat what you like be the cause of harm to your brother in Christ. But instead of causing harm, he says, destroy. And instead of your brother in Christ, he says, him for whom Christ died. If Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on the cross, if he voluntarily poured, voluntarily poured out his own life's blood, to redeem your brother and to give him life. What are you willing to give up to protect your brother? How far are you willing to limit your liberty for the sake of one for whom Jesus died? Here's a fact that I believe should shame us. And I'm convinced it's a fact. My brother Pete Smith got me thinking about this. Most of the conflict that we have in the body of Christ over specific behaviors centers on who has the right knowledge. It's amazing how much effort and energy we put into convincing others that we have the right biblical information, and they don't. Liberty proceeds from knowing. Knowledge is important. It proceeds from knowing what's true in Christ. It is a very good thing for a believer to know the grace of God, to know that he's been freed from the letter of the law to serve in newness of the Spirit. That's an exceedingly blessed knowledge that God intends his children to have. Knowledge is not bad. It's necessary. But God tells us through Paul that if your knowledge is not subordinated to the far greater priority of love, that knowledge becomes downright dangerous to the body of Christ. He begins 1 Corinthians 8 with a very interesting set of statements. Turn over there again, 1 Corinthians 8, and look at the first three verses. This is an amazing statement because in three verses, he uses a, some variant of the word no seven times. Seven times in three verses. 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. through three. And Watch this. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. Seven times in three verses. You think he's trying to make a point? He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He says, if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Paul is blasting us because we've exalted knowledge above love. He's basically telling us that knowledge is overrated because first, whatever we do know, it's less than we ought to know. Second, the knowledge we do have makes us arrogant. And third, knowledge has no necessary connection with love. Knowing what's true does not automatically make you loving. If you divorce the knowledge of the truth from the overwhelming priority of love, that knowledge just makes you arrogant. And beloved, I know the shame of that upside-down priority firsthand. The single most important thing that God has been pounding into me over the last few years is that love trumps knowledge. Not that knowledge is unimportant. It's very important. But love trumps knowledge. 
a number of years ago, I was the guy who got up and disrupted and distracted our worship meeting by coming up to the mic and supposedly correcting the guy that had spoken just before me. When I did that, I exalted my own feeble version of knowledge over love for that brother and love for this body. Not long after that, I went to an Iron Sharpens Iron conference at Emmaus, and I heard Alex Strout teach on 1 Corinthians 13, a passage I had read hundreds of times. And during that message, the Holy Spirit hit me with both barrels with the realization that love for my brothers and sisters in Christ is an infinitely greater priority to God than either knowledge or faith or charity. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. He says, If I have the gift of prophecy, and get this, if I know all mysteries and I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I am nullified. I am canceled out. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now allow me a a brief rabbit trail at this point regarding what is shared in our worship meetings. Have you thought thought much about what, which of the comments that are made during our worship stir your heart most deeply? and elicit the greatest sense of gratitude and praise to God? Is it the comments that demonstrate the greatest biblical scholarship? Is it the comments that could only possibly be presented by men with a long list of Bible college or seminary credentials? Or is it the words that come from men who, whatever their level of knowledge have a profound grasp of simplicity, of the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ, who love God and who love the people of God. I still vividly remember times when a young man named Billy Nation would get up here and bring me to tears of gratitude for the amazing grace of God, and he didn't have five minutes of Bible college credit. Beloved, our worship meetings should not be a forum for those more knowledgeable about the Scriptures to teach those less knowledgeable. We have other opportunities for teaching. Our worship meetings, our worship meetings should be worship meetings. They should be opportunities for every man among us to honor and exalt our glorious Savior. Whether we are young or old, highly educated in the study of the Bible in the original languages, or having none of the credentials that men see fit to honor, we should be tripping over each other to get up here and proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. If you can do that, you should be tripping over other guys to get up here to the mic. And I don't care how old you are. Some of the younger men in this body are the ones who who stir my heart the most, and some of the older men do too. Let our worship be worship. Let it be praise. Let it be exalting to our God and Savior. Beloved, love trumps knowledge, and love trumps the liberty that comes with that knowledge. And as in all things, the measure of true godliness is Christ's own character. Do you want to know the extent, the magnitude of the self-denial to which you are called in order to demonstrate the love of God toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? All you have to do is look at the magnitude of the self-denial that Jesus demonstrated at the cross. If it's knowledge you're fond of, that's the knowledge that overshadows all other knowledge, the knowledge of the cross. We are called to love one another as we have been loved by Christ, and there's a lot that we can give up to do that. The moral basis of the exhortation not to put a stumbling block in your brother's path is the priority of love. And the theological basis is what the kingdom of God is about. 
In verses 16 to 18, Romans 14, Paul says, Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. And what he means by that is don't let something that is a legitimate freedom that you have in Christ be turned to an evil because you use it in such a manner that it causes your brother to stumble. And then he says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. By the way, that's the one and only reference to the kingdom of God in the entire epistle of Romans, even though the kingdom of God is mentioned over 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew. I believe Paul's reference to the kingdom here is further evidence that this whole exhortation section of Romans in chapter 12 through 15 is heavily informed by what the gospel writers had shared with Paul. Men like Peter uh, didn't write a gospel, but he walked with Christ. Men like Matthew. There are many earlier examples in this section of Romans that that just seem to come straight out of the Sermon on the Mount and other passages uh, uh, that speak of Christ's teaching. Paul talks about loving without hypocrisy. He talks about blessing those who curse you. He talks about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Those are all derived from the teaching of Christ. And when he talks about the kingdom of God, I believe he's speaking in the same kind of terminology that Christ used. In Matthew 6, Jesus said this about the difference about the difference between how life as a citizen in the kingdom of God works compared with life for those who are not citizens of the kingdom. He said, For this reason, Matthew 6.25, For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? And then verse 32, he says, All these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You don't have to worry about this external stuff. The first tendency of many of us when we read what Paul says about the kingdom life here in Romans 14, 17 and 18 is to say, in effect, okay, there you have it. Since the kingdom of God is not about rare steaks or beer or Halloween costumes or Harry Potter or Tai Chi, that means that Christians who feel guilty if they participate in such things that aren't clearly forbidden by God, those Christians are completely missing the point of what life as a citizen of God's kingdom is really about. So I shouldn't have to worry about what does or doesn't make them feel comfortable. In fact, the best thing for Christians like that is to have their checklist challenged a little by someone like me who has a better understanding of the grace of God, right? Wrong! Paul goes the exact opposite direction here. (laughs) See, the fact that such things have nothing to do with real kingdom life does not mean you get to do whatever you want with no thought to the well-being of your brother. It means it should be inconsequential to you when you have to forego something you enjoy doing in order to protect the well-being of your fellow heir of God, your fellow citizen of his kingdom. Paul is saying that such a sacrifice is very small indeed, seeing that the life of a kingdom citizen such as yourself is not about clinging to those kinds of freedoms in the first place. What trouble is it to you to give up something that does not constitute real life if it serves your brother and your sister in Christ? Paul already said, hope that is seen is not hope, Romans 8.24. So whatever satisfaction we receive from things we can put our hands on this side of heaven is of little consequence. It's temporary. None of those things constitute real life for us who are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. And by the way, even though we haven't entered into the fullness of that kingdom yet, we're citizens of it right now. 
So those things must never be allowed to divide us who belong to Christ. All right, I'm about out of time, but i got to get to the so what. In verses 19 to 23, Paul gives us a clear statement of our assignment. He says, So then, in light of everything that he's just said, in light of the exhortation itself, in light of the moral basis of that exhortation, which is the priority of love, in light of the fact that the kingdom life is not about temporary things, so then, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Indeed, all things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is, not, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. And then he gets to the last two, which I'll, I'll mention shortly. Okay, so then, because love trumps knowledge and liberty, because the kingdom of God is not about externals, but it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, therefore let us pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, he kind of clarifies here what he meant by peace uh, earlier when he was talking about peace in the kingdom of God. He's talking about peace in our relationships with our fellow believers His appeal here is for the genuine unity that characterizes the body of Christ when our priorities are God's priorities. When we're unconcerned with the things that God considers peripheral and we're focused on the things that God declares to be central. When Paul refers here to the building up of one another, his words should be understood in light of what he presented in chapter 12 about the body life. And that is, We build up one another as individuals in order to build up the body corporately. Same in Ephesians chapter 4. God is at work through the gifts that he gives in the body to equip every individual to bring us all uh, to a point of maturity. Why? So that the body will work well together. The ongoing work of Christ depends on the health of his body. And so we build one another up in order to fortify the body. In verse 20, Paul moves from positive exhortation to negative. He he just said we are to build up, and then he says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. What's the work of God? It is the life that he has created in your brother and your sister in Christ, and it is the body, the well-being of the body. Now, he says... He says that uh, if you tear down your brother for the sake of these external things, you take that which is clean and you make it evil. How can something be both clean and evil at the same time? The answer, again, is very simple. God is not concerned with externals. God is concerned with the heart. He's concerned with the love that we have for one another. At the level of externals, all things indeed are clean. But we turn them into sin when we avail ourselves of them in a manner that hurts our brothers. In the two concluding verses of this passage, verses 22 and 23, Paul makes it very clear that God is not concerned about what's in your stomach. He's concerned about what's in your heart. He says, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. By the way, the word happy there in verse 22 is a word that really, in most contexts, means divinely blessed. In other words, enjoying the blessing of God. If you're not sure that it's acceptable to God for you to participate in a given behavior, then it is not acceptable for you to participate in that behavior. If you ignore your own uncertainty, 
then you sin against God. On the other hand, if God's Word neither forbids nor commands a behavior and you are convinced that you have the freedom to do it, and if by doing it you will not tempt another brother to violate his own conscience before God, then you're free to do it with God's blessing. And if that's too many ifs for you, get over it. Your enjoyment of those temporal freedoms is great. But that's not what your life is about. Get used to the fact that your freedom is limited by love for God and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love trumps liberty every time. Which is more important to you? Your freedom to eat and drink and watch and read and listen to whatever you choose your freedom to vigorously defend your political opinions, your freedom not to have to accommodate Christians who don't get grace the way you do? Is it those freedoms that are most important to you or is it that sacred calling to love and nurture and protect and build up the body of Jesus Christ? No matter what temporal freedom you have to give up in order to do so. Loving Father, I thank you for this body, for my family. We thank you for one another. We thank you for the way that you have bound our hearts together by the work of your Spirit who is in us. Father, we pray that you would work in us so that we would do nothing that threatens that bond. Nothing that threatens the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Lord, we see and we recognize that that this is your priority for us as members of your body, to build up and never to tear down. We pray that you would make it clear to us how we are to carry that out in a way that honors our Savior and our Master so that his work will continue to go on powerfully powerfully through this body of believers. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.